Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry. I am joined today by correspondent John Evans in Brazil, Rachel Sapin, reporter in Seattle, and Nina Unlai, reporter in London. Hello, everybody. Let's dive right in. Uh, it has been a chaotic start to December uh, after a very busy November, um, and the, the two easily biggest most uh most blockbuster bits of news that we've had probably all year uh have been the uh the cash for quotas scandal at Icelandic fishing giant Samurai and the uh the conviction of former Bumblebee CEO Chris Lasuski for criminal price fixing uh, we're going to dive into those today and then talk a little bit about uh, a commentary that Nina did earlier this week John, I'm going to kick it to you. Uh, let's discuss Summergy because it has been um, it has been quite a saga. The Icelandic press has been on it like nobody's business. Al Jazeera actually broke the story initially uh, with some help from uh, the Namibian and uh, a little help from WikiLeaks as well. Um, but essentially, give us where we are right now, and then let's uh, go over some of the unanswered uh, unanswered questions and some of the implications. Yeah, the uh, the company Samergy has been um, run, uh, having a running battle really with the um, with the Icelandic press, which has made it a little bit difficult to decipher actually, you know, what what is going on because they seem to their answers uh, certainly in the early stages have seemed to uh, have sort of tended towards the uh, the Icelandic press. So it's uh, it, it's left the sort of um, international readership a little bit um not exactly in the dark but asking questions as as you mentioned um interestingly in the last day or so the company put out a statement to co-workers to reassure them um i think they were getting asked a lot of questions about that and obviously they're concerned about the uh, the severity of the of the of the charges as well but um as we as we mentioned there are a lot of unanswered um questions um and the company itself this week also said that it, it's analysing other investigations, many of them serious, serious I should say. Um, it hasn't yet told us what they are. We're hoping to speak to them in the next uh, day or so. But, um, yes, uh, th- there are many um, things that we'd like to get to the bottom of. Um, not least, sorry, uh, not least, uh, you know, Samaji's relationship to Cape Cod FS, um, uh, which um, you know the company has denied that it, it belongs to it, but it's it's not uh, exact exactly clear, and I think they need to make things a little bit clearer. So, Nina, tell us if if we were to break down basically what the accusations are, uh, what are they? <laughs> it's a huge question, Drew. Thanks. To break it down, currently there's several investigations kind of happening at different stages at once. So on the Namibian end, uh, already six officials and kind of ex-executives have been charged um, on several different counts, but mainly um, stating that they received kickbacks uh, in exchange for fishing quotas for the species horse mackerel, um, which is also what Samari uh, fishes in Namibia. As John said, because of the back and forth between the Icelandic media and the company, there seems to be a bit of confusion um, surrounding this. But 
uh, in the WikiLeaks archives, it seems to be highlighting that Samarjee transferred a considerable amount of money, which has been the center of kind of this media back and forth with Samarjee saying they don't uh, own the account, therefore can't be liable for this, and that they were actually transferring funds in order to pay uh, the crew that they've hired in their operations in Namibia through this other company, which is which they claim is common practice in Namibia. Um, but this company um, is owned by another company, which which can be traced back to one of the Namibian officials, who is also being charged. Uh, for the bribery allegations in the Namibian investigation, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of holes, there's a lot of gaps. But what what we can tell is that Samari has some ties or has kind of exchanged money with with a company that also has ties to the officials that are being charged in the Namibian investigation for receiving kickbacks. Um, and these are also the officials that were heavily featured in the Al Jazeera documentary. Um, that was just released on Sunday that has some footage showing these officials um, kind of discussing a donation to be made in exchange for the quotas. Uh, on the Icelandic end, investigations are supposedly just beginning, um, with Samari confirming uh, to Interfish a few days ago that it's in the early stages um, and that they're basically cooperating and handing over all the documents that are required by the tax authorities. There were three Samari officials who were named in the Namibian investigations as, as key persons of interest, including um, uh, Mar Baldinson, the, the CEO who had stepped down, um, and two other people, Adelstein Helgeson and Ingvar Juliusen, um, who were either Samari, uh, Samari executives or ex-Samari executives, um, but the company hasn't said whether or not these people are going to be investigated in particular. So that's kind of where we're at. It's a lot of moving parts, um, especially because the investigation's happening on two fronts. And Angola has been drawn into this as well because of the uh, the joint company that they had, uh, the joint state-owned company that they had with Namibia. Um, they've already had some uh, some investigations into their uh, it's their fisheries minister that's that stepped down, I believe, uh, as a result of this as well. And and one of the bigger things about it that is interesting, and I think John, you alluded to this earlier in terms of uh, in in terms of how Iceland is receiving this. Um, the Icelandic press is uh, all over this in a way that's kind of stunning. But it's important to remember Iceland's a very very small country. Uh, fishing and seafood is a very, very important part of their economy. Um, Samarji is is one of the world's largest seafood companies uh, and the largest seafood company in in Iceland, uh, based in Iceland, you should say, uh, with operations all around the world. Um, Mar Balvinson has been, uh, over the years, very, very press shy, very, very uh, closed off as to what um, how the company operates. Um, and I don't mean to say that that, that uh, in any way uh, is proof that there was an, anything uh, untoward going on. Um, just my experience in, uh, in trying to uh, get information from, from him and line up interviews, um, which have been uh, unsuccessful for, for 20 years. I've never interviewed uh, Mar Balvinson and probably um, tried to uh, a million times. Um, but the, the Icelandic economy and the Icelandic government and uh, just, I would say, the Icelandic, um, the conception of who they are as a people has really been shaken by this. And you can see on Facebook and their, in their commentaries and their, uh, in their uh, main news sites, 
people are really starting to kind of look inward because of this and say, hey, how much uh, corruption are we ignoring here in, in Iceland? So it's become this... Um, this really hotly debated issue across the country. And John, you've hit on this a bit. I mean, the um, the prime minister's been involved. Um, just in general, there's a lot of concern about Iceland's reputation, correct? Yeah, she uh, said that they'll leave no stone unturned uh, to get to the bottom of this. But, you know, what we'd like to know is, uh, you know, given what we've learned so far, how can customers, suppliers... Uh, be reassured that Samaji is a reliable company to work with and indeed that it will stay in business. Also, uh, given what we've learned, how can competitors be reassure, reassured that they are operating on a level playing field? And um, given what the, the government said about um, tightening up things, you know, to prevent such occurrences in future, now does Samaji support the proposed overhaul of how Icelandic fishing companies uh, must report their finances and how they obtain quotas, etc.? Cash for quotas is not uncommon, uh, particularly in West Africa. And there's a lot of companies that have been uh, operating there for years and years and years. Um, they don't like to talk about it. And, um, and you know, African countries, they're, uh, they're notorious for uh, having a lot of corruption in the government. Um, so it's, it can be difficult to, um, difficult to operate there, I think, for companies um, and be... Uh, at the level of transparency that that modern retailers and and just the modern uh, economy demands of of companies, um, but there has been for years, for years and years, Chinese companies and and other companies that um, have engaged in a in a practice that is uh, similar, where uh, you can go to officials, you can effectively uh, lease on very very long term periods the quotas. Uh, off the coasts of these countries, and um, you know it's uh, it's it's not it's not uh, it's not fair to the uh, the citizens of, the, of those countries when when they're not getting any part of uh, of this this common resource as part of their uh, exclusive economic zone. But Rachel Mutter uh, did a fantastic kind of overview of the Namibian quota system, and Namibia has been one along with South Africa that have really been uh, lauded for having. Uh, a, a, a very uh, a very transparent quota system and, and a very strong management system. Their uh, their Hake fishery is nearing MSC certification, I believe. Nina, it's on the on the path for that. It's in assessment, and they're expecting uh, kind of final consultations in in the early of next year. And that indicates that there is you know a robust management uh, um, system in place. The MSC certification groups tend to do a, a pretty thorough job on that. Um, but of course, they can investigate government corruption. They you know that the sustainability of the fishery has nothing necessarily to do with how those quotas are allocated. So. Um, it's going to be very interesting. I think there's a lot more that's going to come out of it. The, the WikiLeaks documents alone, they name a lot of different companies. And I think in the sort of scramble to get information out about it, um, you know, there's a lot of people named in those documents. And it's really, it, it's it's too early to say exactly how this was uh, carried out, how this was constructed. But we do know a few things. And one is we have people on camera, or Al Jazeera has people on camera, rather, um, asking for these bribes. So there is a, there, there's a there there. The question is, how was the, how was the scheme um, kind of orchestrated? Rachel, you've been covering the ongoing saga of Bumblebee, which has been 
Uh, wow. Uh, there has been the company's price-fixing allegations, which they settled. There's been executives that have settled with the Department of Justice. There has been uh, class action suits. Um, there's been a bankruptcy. And earlier this week, the former CEO, Chris Lashewski, was convicted of criminal price fixing. So tell us a little bit about how this came to pass and then give us a sense of how the, the case kind of wound up. This case is a, a big one, a big win so far for the U.S. Department of Justice. It, it dates back to around 2010 when three companies, uh, Starkist, Chicken of the Sea, and Bumblebee, all colluded um, to kind of raise, sorry, <laughs> kind of uh, are said to have worked together to or conspired to fix prices for canned tuna sold in the United States. And they were purported to have done this between November 2010 and December 2013. And the DOJ was, through Chicken of the Sea really, was able to kind of uh, find out about this conspiracy around 2014-2015, got a primary whistleblower from Chicken of the Sea to confess to the conspiracy and name Lashewski as kind of the ringleader of it. And from there, it all kind of fell into place with Starkist as a company pleading guilty and has been ordered to pay $100 million so far to the Department of Justice. Bumblebee as a company has paid $25 million. Um, so Lashewski, um, he really was the last piece in this ongoing conspiracy uh, and that issue came to to a head in November with his criminal trial where he was ultimately convicted of price fixing and right now they're just working on his sentencing and so far he could face up to 10 years in prison and a fine of a million dollars so it's a huge deal it's in every major newspaper um, apparently his wife, when she heard the news, um, according to reporters in the courtroom in California, said she was sobbing. I mean, it's it's a really fascinating case, um, and he is going to have to, you know, um, he's going to have to serve potentially uh, a couple of years of jail time for this and pay a substantial amount of money. Which is just kind of shocking when you think about it. I think as this has been uh, ongoing, it's been so it's been such a long running case that it's always interesting that you follow these, you know, and and it's just um, drip, 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 and then it's it's hit this massive head. And I don't think uh, I don't think Lashevsky at all thought he was going to be convicted of this. Um, he certainly has not presented the uh, outwardly presented that he thought he was going to go to jail for this. Um, you know, I, it's going to be interesting as we analyze it in the in the coming uh, days and weeks um, when you have sort of a um, a mafia style uh, investigation, which I, I think is how the DOJ structures these typically. And when you look at it, it's quite it, it fits the mold, right? Is that you start with people on the outside and you get some confessions, you get some settlements, and it kind of winds the the way up to what the DOJ really wants is they want to have one person to pin things on, one person to highlight as, hey, here was the the bad guy. Um, the, the evidence is pretty compelling when you read it. I'm not a juror. I wasn't in the courtroom. But when you read all the documents over the, the course of the years that have been filed, um, 
very compelling that Leshevsky was involved in uh, in the case, and certainly the twelve members of the jury thought he thought he was as well. Um, but I think the larger question now is where does the the broader tuna industry go? Bumblebee's bankrupt, um, and tuna is not going to be a category that's going to grow anytime soon. It's just simply not. So. With all this behind uh, them, and I think uh, the the Bumblebee CEO, she said, you know, we're looking forward to moving on, just sort of a standard kind of press comment. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means for the tuna industry. So, um, yeah, we'll be looking at that in the coming days. But sad, sad saga. Um, and we'll see if he appeals and uh, and see what the sentence is, uh, is like. But definitely the highest profile... Uh, seafood executive that I can recall um, being convicted of anything uh, even near to this scope. So lots of scandal uh, happening in the seafood industry, which (laughs) segues very nicely into Nina's commentary. Um, Nina, you are uh, new to covering the seafood industry. Um, Relatively new. Mm -hmm. Relatively new. Um, and one of the things that you've noticed, uh, just from an outside perspective, is how uh, how bad the seafood industry has been in responding to crises versus other industries, and maybe being a bit out of step with how modern uh, how modern crisis communications need to work in the era of social media. So, tell us a little bit about your your thinking and what you're arguing on that uh, you know on that front. Sure. Um- so, well, like I said in the in the column, it's it's kind of it was it was something that I noticed particularly because the seafood industry has had, as you said, a lot of controversies in the past few months. Not just uh, Samergy and uh, uh, the price fixing uh, tuna case, but a lot of environmental um, kind of uh, incidents as well. And I I think what's um, very unique about those is that they can be captured on footage. Um, and footage is something that spreads uh, quite wildly on social media and companies are then pressured to respond. Um, and so several companies did. There was Cermak um, very recently with the with the algal bloom. There was Moe with the uh, die-off in Newfoundland. Um, and there was also, of course, the one for Cook. Basically, because of um, all of these uh, explanations and apologies that the companies had been issuing, I kind of noticed that at certain points, the, the tone felt like they weren't speaking for a general consumer. Um, and that if I hadn't known a lot of the things that I now know about the industry just in the few months that I've started working for Interfish, that I would not um, easily be able to relate or even appreciate the things that these companies were saying. And I think that's when I started noticing a disconnect um, with the way that these companies were trying to communicate with their consumers. And that's where the idea for the column started. Um, And in speaking with more experts and reading more studies, uh, it started to be more clear that there was was an urgency for companies to start responding better and and also just quicker. Um, In in my conversation with uh, Fran O'Leary, who's a PR expert in in the seafood industry, she highlighted a few things, including that social media is not, is perhaps an area that the industry is not taking as seriously as it should, in that a lot of the times it's still viewed as an add-on 
to strategic communications rather than being an integral part of the strategy that needs constant monitoring and constant updating and just, just really needs to be a part of how a company makes a cohesive kind of brand image and, and communication with its with its consumers. And I thought that was very relevant, especially because we're dealing with an industry that that is sometimes can be more conservative in its approach. What have been the reactions to your to your column? There's been a couple letters that have come in, a couple comments on social media. So far, interestingly, um, the the reactions have been quite positive. There's been a lot of people, uh, and some people in in communication in the seafood industry in particular that I find really interesting, saying that this is an important discussion that needs to be had um, because it is something that the industry has been facing. There was a letter that was released just today by uh, Craig Morris from the Genuine Alaska. Uh, pollock producers um, and he agrees with a lot of my points and he disagrees with me on a lot of points also and I think he really expanded the discussion um, he points out and and this was something that also came up with with my conversation with Fran that that yes the the industry might not have might maybe should not do with science and facts in in moments of crisis but in general um that science and these facts are necessary because because the industry really needs to be working towards having a more um, informed consumer, so to speak. And that on the front of, say, sustainability, for example, companies are actually doing a really good job in PR. And you can make the argument that the industry is actually winning in terms of PR. Um, but one of the things that Fran and I talked about, which I think is important uh, to bring up, is that when you do crisis management, companies always need to be monitoring for specific issues. Um, and this is, of course, something that all companies do. It's that um, they get together and they talk about what issues they need to be looking at, what consumers are concerned about, um, and how they're doing on those fronts. And of course, sustainability is one of those things that you can see very clearly. Companies know that consumers care about sustainability. Um, but the question came up of how often companies actually update their crisis monitoring, how much they update this radar that they have for the issues consumers are concerned about. Um, and we, we wondered, and we never actually came to a conclusion for this, whether companies actually knew what issues consumers really wanted to know about, like if maybe perhaps they needed to start thinking about or taking other issues more seriously, like fish welfare, for example, which has been a common thread in the recent kind of slate of incidents. And maybe this is something that they don't realize needs to be better in messaging or has to have a stronger, more empathetic approach because consumers are starting to take it a lot more seriously. So one of the key takeaways then for the seafood industry is not just having a rapid response, but also having uh, relationships, having a presence built already on social media and already with the, the broader general media ahead of when the crisis comes. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the kind of key uh, features of crisis management that Fran highlighted is that it happens way before a crisis starts um, and that companies need to be monitoring, they need to be prepared, they need to know who's going to say uh, the final, whatever the company's final say is, and all of this happens before a crisis hits. And also, knowing what you're going to say and how you're going to respond also depends on the monitoring that these companies are doing beforehand. So really all the work comes before the crisis and that's just that's just the test. That's the moment where you have to respond. So companies really need to be preparing and maybe investing more resources towards this so that they know exactly what their position is and how they need to respond. 
plenty more crises in the seafood industry uh, for years to come. That's a part of doing business. So let's see if they if they learn uh, from your from your column, Nina. All right, so let's wrap it up there. Uh, just a reminder, it's the holidays, uh, but uh, 2020 is just around the corner. At the end of January, January 22nd, uh, on the sidelines of the NFI Global Seafood Marketing Conference in Orlando, we'll have our event, Women, Millennials, and Beyond, uh, the Hunt for Tomorrow's Talent. It's going to be a fantastic event. The women in seafood events that we've had have been uh, have been my favorites. Um, we've just had a great lineup of speakers, and it's really uh, sparked some interesting discussions. And we brought that out this year to talk about bringing in uh, younger people into the industry and other other ways to diversify the talent in seafood. Because uh, as we all know, it's a it's an aging demographic. It's a male dominated uh, industry. So um, a lot more to be done to help move the industry forward, and a big part of that's going to be bringing in, uh, bringing in new people with new, uh, with new ideas and new perspectives. So uh, don't miss that. You can find that on intrafishevents.com. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining. We'll be back.